0: Okay, so today's message, uh, we're going to focus on this idea of the unity of the four Gospels. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about the unity of what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Then, uh, Lord willing, and we'll see how we get through that part, I want to actually piggyback on the back of that and talk about the unity of the Son of God and the Father, right? And 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 if I can get all that in there. But the Cowboys play tonight by seven thirty, so we gotta work through this thing and kinda get it going, right? So um I'm trying to prep myself for a losing season, right? So at least I'm realistic. So we've discussed so far, we've discussed uh the idea of Jesus being the Son of Man, what that means in the scripture. Um Yes, you can say that can denote his humanity, but we also understand that it denotes also that he actually is the second Adam. He is the one that will rule and reign from the book of Daniel. We talked last week about him being the Messiah and the implications of that. We talked about why do you see sometimes in the Gospels where Jesus says like, hey, I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody about this. Right. We kind of talked about that in context. Today I want to look at this idea of the unity of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, just some unifying aspects of it. Then I want to talk about the unity of Matthew, Mark, Luke, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, and we'll get to the unity of uh, God the Son and God the Father, uniquely trying to understand the phrase, the Son of God, and why it's helpful for a, was you're discipling someone, that you kind of go through and talk about that idea of the Son of God. So let's just look at just the unity of the Gospels, if we can do that, the unity of the Gospels. Um, if you'll raise your hand and raise your, I don't know if you have to raise, did we already pass them out? Are we good? Look at that. We're already, we're already, uh, we already know about it. So I'm not going to spend much time on this idea, but but I I will tell you that the Gospels are, have distinctive um, the writers, Matthew, as he's writing eyewitness an eyewitness to the account, Matthew is writing uniquely some unique distinctives that make his gospel distinct from Mark and from Luke and from John. But yet there is a unity among them. Uh, Matthew is writing, and we're not going to say much about it because we'll go more into this next week, but Matthew is trying to show him as Messiah, as the King of the Jews, but not only the King of the Jews, but the King of the nations, right? That's what he's trying to show. You see Matthew mentioning this Messiah who is also Messiah for the nations. You see, Mark, he's trying to show that Jesus is a servant. You see, Mark is actually, most would say Mark is the first gospel. He's kind of and an, he's a he's a lot of a lot of um historians and theologians would say that Mark is actually putting his gospel from Peter's eyewitness account. Uh you look at the book of Mark and his goal and job it really seems he's trying to just ca- capture the immediate specifics of the life and ministry of Jesus. If you've ever noticed, Mark is a much shorter book. Mark kind of gets to the point. You see the word like immediately and following that being used in Mark to denote he's going from one event to the next. So there's a distinctive between like Matthew and Mark. But what you find is Matthew is including some things that Mark doesn't include. For instance, uh, Matthew is including genealogy and the birth of Jesus. You get into Mark, he didn't even, I mean, he just rushes in to John the Baptist and then the ministry of Jesus. You come to Luke, and Luke is trying to do an eyewitness account. Luke is a two-volume set, the book of Luke and Acts. And Luke, um, being an eyewitness account gatherer as well, he's actually trying to really gather facts, and very detailed Luke is when you see what Luke says compared to Mark and Matthew. Luke is trying to give an accurate examination. He's doing eyewitness account. It's very distinct. So when you read... When you get someone who's new to the Lord and you're trying, they're reading the Bible and you're trying to help them, there is some distinctions between Matthew, Mark, and Luke when you read the gospel there. Just because they accomplish and have different details from even the same events doesn't mean there's an inaccuracy in that. In fact, I would submit to you that probably means there's greater accuracy. So for instance, if you believe that Mark, in which most would say Mark was written first, if Matthew was just trying to copy Mark, then Matthew would have just done a carbon copy of Mark. But Matthew has things that Mark doesn't. When you go to Luke, if Luke was just trying to accomplish a pure plagiarism of Mark, then why would Luke actually do, in the beginning of his gospel, he's, uh, he's doing the birth of Christ, but he's actually even looking at genealogy, tracking back to Adam, where Matthew does Abraham. So you see there's some distinctions among them. You even get to John. And boy, John is way different uh, sometimes than the other Gospels. Uh, the, we, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have so much similarity. We'll talk about that in a minute. John, at times it seems, not that his accounts are different, but John is including information that you don't see as much in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Although when you start to get to the end of Jesus' ministries, you get closer to the cross, you do see some crossover that John is mentioning things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention. But there's distinctives that they're trying to accomplish John is trying to accomplish this idea of Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God that you may believe. His goal is to try to get you to see that Messiah is the Savior of the world. So each of these gospel writers have a different aspect of that. They're trying to show the good news of who Jesus is, his life and his ministry. Different aspects, different audiences. But they all have a unity to them. And that unity, sometimes if you understand some unique distinctives about them... It won't mess you up when you study a passage and go like, well why does John mention this but Matthew mentions this. I'll give you an example. take your bible and go to matthew chapter twenty six we'll we'll look at with just time's sake we'll look at matthew twenty six we're going to be flipping the pages quite a bit. I hope you're okay with that let's look at the betrayal of let's look at just the cataloging of the betrayal of Jesus go to matthew twenty six go to verse uh, forty seven I want you to notice a couple things. We're talking about the unity of all the four Gospels. Especially with John when you get to the very end. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up. And with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whoever I kiss he is the one sees him and immediately judas went to jesus and said greetings rabbi and he kissed him and jesus said to him friend do what you've come for this is matthew 26 and we're now in verse 50 and they came and laid hands on jesus and seized him and behold one of those who were with jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear notice there's no name given for who ...actually did this, or what ear it was, or any healing of the ear. Verse 52, and Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. All those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. And do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father... ...who at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels, seventy-two thousand angels? Therefore, how will how will the scriptures be fulfilled which says that it must happen this way? At the same time Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me?... As you would against a robber? Every day I sat with you in the temple preaching and teaching, and did you not seize me? All this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. I want you to notice, in Matthew's account, you have some things. He's, he's not mentioning who cut off the ear. He's not mentioning what ear it is, or that the ear is even healed, what we see in other accounts. But he is mentioning this idea of put the sword back in its place. He is mentioning this idea of no one's forcing this. I could call down 12 legions of angels. He is mentioning twice that this must be fulfilled. Now, why would Matthew do this? Well, remember, Matthew is writing to show him as the king, as the Messiah. And we want to make sure that we're quoting Old Testament scripture to prove that Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah, but the Messiah of the world and He's trying to make sure that this audience understands this. At the same time, Jesus' kingdom is not going to be ushered in by man protecting him. So he lets it know, like, hey, if you're going to live by the sword, you die by the sword. He makes sure and understand that no one's forcing him to go to the cross. He's going at it. Now go to Mark 14. Mark 14. In Mark 14, you don't see um, all those same, but you do see some things actually mentioned. But remember... We're dealing with Mark who is just trying to get to the facts. He's trying to get to the data. He's laying out the life and ministry of Jesus. Constantly, you see this transitionary word used in Mark. Immediately and after. Immediately and after. So look what Mark says. It says in verse 43 of Mark 14. Immediately while he was speaking, Judas 1 of the 12 came up and with him was a crowd with swords and clubs from who were the chief priests and scribes and elders. And he who was betraying him had given him a signal saying, Whoever I kiss... He is the one, seize him and lead him away. And after coming, Judas, having immediately gone to him, said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And one of those who stood by drew the sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Notice that Mark doesn't talk about... Um, This idea of if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Mark doesn't talk anything about the whole legions of angels or anything of that. Does that make Mark's gospel disunified with Matthew? No. They have distinctive distinctive things they're trying to accomplish. Mark is trying to get to the life and ministry of Jesus. He's trying to lay out an orderly account. Go over to Luke. Look in Luke chapter 22. When you're spending time with a new disciple in Jesus and they start reading the gospels, it, sometimes they may need to have an understanding that there is a unity among the Gospels, but just because there's details that one may cover that, that may not about the same uh, time frame, about the same passage, does not mean that there is disunity, does not mean that it is inaccurate. It means that these Gospel writers have unique accomplishments to try to go after. Luke, trying to write an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus... A very detailed eyewitness account. A very good researcher. This this document had to be well researched by eyewitness accounts. This Luke, let's see what he has to say. Notice when you get to Luke, he gives some details that maybe that others don't even give. Look in verse 47 of Luke 22. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and one called Judas, one of the twelve, was coming ahead of him. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Right? Mark doesn't talk about that, but Luke's given some great detail. He's very detailed, his gospel. And when those around him saw the sign, what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? You don't see that, you don't see that talk in Matthew about that kind of uh, debate. And one of them struck the slave, of the high priest, to cut off his right ear. He knows that Matthew and Mark don't talk about a Right ear, right? But what is Luke? Luke is a a man of detail. Right ear. And Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed them. Notice that Luke talks about a healing of the ear. Matthew and Mark don't. But Luke's also a doctor. He's a physician. He's paying close attention. Wouldn't a physician kind of be interested in the healing of the ear? Now, some may go like, well, why doesn't Matthew mention the healing of the ear? I think that's kind of a boss thing, don't you? Well, Matthew has a certain thing he's trying to accomplish and he's not trying to write his gospel according to what Nick wants, right? He's writing the gospel of Jesus Christ according to how the Holy Spirit is inspiring him. You keep looking at the passage. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who came against him, Have you come out with swords and club against the robber Why I was with you daily in the temple? You did not stretch out your hands against me, but this hour and the authority of darkness is yours. And so he continues to go on. We'll, we won't go further. Now look over at John. John 18. Now, there's a unity between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John really doesn't... Really catalogs a lot of things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. And the reason is it's a whole different perspective. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually... When you look at their Gospels, we're going to talk in a minute. There's a lot of of similar elements that are in each of those. That's why we call them the synoptics. We'll discuss that. But look at John's account. John chapter 18. In verse 1 through 11, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with the disciples to the other side of the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often gathered there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, and he said to them, I am he. By the way, that word he is italicized, meaning it's not, it's provided by the translators for an ease of reading. It's not in the original text, but when you look through the book of John, our seven times John uses the phrase, I am, right? Denoting that Jesus is God, that he is Yahweh. So uniquely, John's going to mention this, but uniquely, Look what happens in verse 5. Jesus says, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying, was standing with them. So when Jesus said, I am, they drew back. In verse 6, what does it say? He fell to the ground. Now one may think, like, how come Matthew and Mark and Luke? I mean, come on, guys. Wouldn't you want to mention that detail? I mean, that's a pretty unique detail, right? I am, and everybody falls to the ground in absolute surrender to Yahweh. But, that was not the purpose of Matthew writing, or Mark, or Luke. They had specific accomplishments, things they trying to write with their gospel, uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Mark's trying to give the specifics of the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew's trying to show him as the Messiah, King of the Jews, but also he's the King of the nations, right? Luke's trying to give an eyewitness, orderly account of, of, the, of the life of Jesus. John's trying to accomplish the... I am Jesus is God, right? That's why a lot of times when you first get a new disciple, the book of John is a great place to start because it starts layering out who Jesus is, that he is God. So it's no wonder that John would actually show this part of this same passage. Everybody falls down because I am has said it. Look in verse 7. Therefore he again said to them, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I wasn't afraid to ask that again. uh, or I was afraid to answer that again. What happened? And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way in order that the word will be spoken, was fulfilled. Those whom you've given me, I've lost none. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest slave and cut off the right ear. And the slave's name was what? Notice the other ones don't mention it was Peter that drew the sword or who the slave was. It was Malchus. But why would John even mentioned this compared to the other ones. Well, it could be that we get in Genesis, in, in, um, not Genesis, we're not even in that book, right? That's another series, right? John, in chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, is writing an account so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And so, the fact that John, an eyewitness account, can have such great detail, helps you to have a, a great confidence that his gospel is right, accurate, true, and in proper order. So I would tell you this, there is unity in the four gospels, especially when you start to get to similar stories, even in the book of John, which really does not not share the bulk of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but when you start getting towards the final days. That brings me to my second point. So first I would tell you this, there is unity among all four gospels. There is unity, there is distinctiveness, but unity. But number two, I would tell you, if you're taking notes, there is unity among what we call the synoptic gospels, right? Synoptic, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke. Now, if you're kind of nerdy and into words and stuff, the word synoptic means together viewing, together viewing, synoptics, together viewing. If you hear people use that word synoptic gospels, that's what it means. We're saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, boy, they really have a lot. They track with each other pretty solid. Now, that doesn't mean there's not unique distinctions in some of the passages, but they catalog and walk through 13 major aspects of Jesus' life and ministry, and they each comment in those areas, but with their distinctive, unique distinctives, right? If everybody gets this paper that I passed out. This is uh, from a new book uh, that I thought had a great outline. If you look on that page that we passed out, we're not going to walk all through that. Uh, that's from uh, a new book called A New Testament Biblical Theology Bob Palmer, Robertson. But what he did is, if you have this outline, there's 13 major significant blocks, aspects of Jesus' ministry. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, we would call this synoptics, viewing together, right? They, they all catalog these different events. Over 50 events of similarity, 13 major aspect blocks 50 oh, about around 50 events it's cataloging the um the uh, the events now we already saw one you can actually see uh, although we looked went to John you saw just about the garden you saw just Matthew Mark and Luke so we won't go super far but let me draw your attention to this idea why why would Matthew Mark Luke why would that be needed now look John's gospel doesn't track all the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, except when we start to get towards the cross, the closer we get to the end. But why do we have that? We'll do this. Look up Deuteronomy 17.6 and look up Deuteronomy 19.15. So go to Deuteronomy. If you're wondering, where is Deuteronomy? It's in the front, so just keep turning to the front. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers. Deuteronomy. All the Israelite kings were to write this book. One wonders how well Solomon wrote this book, alright? That's another discussion. Look in chapter 17, verse 6. Part of, the, part of the, the justice laws, the civil laws, you couldn't be prosecuted, you needed two or three witnesses. It says in verse 6, On the mouth of two or three witnesses, but he who shall not be put to death... But shall be put to death on the mouth, but shall not be put to death on the mouth of one witness. In Israel, it was established. You couldn't be put to death. You couldn't be charged with a crime with just one witness. It was two to three witnesses, right? You go over to chapter 19 and verse 15, you see for Israel, there was this idea. It says in verse 15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. If you know Matthew chapter 18, most of us know Matthew 18. We could probably quote it. But doesn't Matthew 18 tell us that when you're going through the process of redemptive discipline in your church, remember what it says in verse 15 of Matthew 18? If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take what? One to two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Right? So like when a church carries forth redemptive discipline, they're doing it because the two or three witnesses have agreed. Where did Matthew get that idea? He got that from Deuteronomy. Now, let me propose to you. Why do we have have to have four gospel accounts? Why do we even have three gospel accounts that are the synoptic gospels that if you look at that paper, look how much of the life of Jesus they track with each other. Why is that? Let me submit to you this idea. The two or three witnesses. God wanted to make sure in his word, unmistakable, that you had an accurate life of the ministry of Jesus Christ written by three different authors, two eyewitnesses and then two by two eyewitnesses, then one with witness testimony, one with more Peter's testimony, what most of us suppose Luke with more eyewitness testimony. We've got the testimony of four, but we've got the testimony of three that track very close in the scope and sequence where 50 different events are all accomplished, are all mentioned in each of their Gospels. Why is that? Because two or three witnesses. So sometimes people would look and go, you know, a new disciple, they'll read the Gospels and they'll go, this just doesn't seem right. It, it seems to contradict itself. And really, no, actually what God is doing is he's establishing two or three witnesses so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of Man and that he's the Son of God, Right. Um, by the way, this also gives me confidence, personally. Um, the very fact that each of these gospel writers have a a different point, a different shade that they're going towards, tells me this must be true and accurate. Because if you were going to plagiarize each other, you wouldn't have such varying detail or ex- extra facts. If, if Mark, which most would say is the first one, if John was just copying from Mark, why would John put in details such as it was Peter that cut off the ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Everybody fell down. I mean, wouldn't he think himself unconfident to go, wait a minute, Mark says nothing about anybody falling to the ground. I'm not really sure I can do this. You understand this, right? So the fact that John could put that in there tells you that John from eyewitness account knows this is a true fact, even though Mark and Matthew and Luke don't have that account of everybody falling down when Jesus says I am. So that's the unity of the four gospels that we see. I would encourage you to take that piece of take that page that I handed out, use it as a devotion. Just kind of read each of those passages and start to see the, the flavor and now next week we'll look at Matthew the week after. We'll look at Mark, then Luke, then John, some unique distinctives of their gospels. Now with my remaining time, here's what I'd like to do. Um, man, I made my way through that just as I had thought I would because I always nail my sermons right the way I want to, right? Amen. So, this is the unity of the Gospels. That's why you have four Gospels. Three of them, synoptic, really track with each other. Now, I want to give you this because this is a part of the idea of unity. When you start to get someone new in the Lord, they're reading the Gospels. We've I've walked you through the Son of Man idea, the Messiah idea. And especially if you have them read the book of John, you're going to see a lot of talk about the Son of God, right? But you're also going to see a lot about Jesus talking about He and His Father and the unity that they have with each other. Now, a lot of times when I hear the word Son of God, don't we automatically just think of this biological idea, right? We think of, I have a dad. His name's Ray Brown, right? Uh, one of the greatest steak cookers that ever existed on God's green planet, right? And now he has bequeathed that to me, right? I'm his son. I'm the son of Ray. So when, you, when a new person in the Lord, and, and they're new you your discipling, they read Son of God, and they read it, he says to the Father, their immediate kind of idea is thinking, oh, I get this. Like, I've got a dad. I'm a son. I get it. But I would submit to you that helping them understand this idea that Jesus being the Son of God is not really trying to denote that same aspect of just like Nick is a son of Ray Brown. Now, I, I think you can you can easily say, yes, that family, some of those family comparableness actually exists. God uses familial language in the scriptures. And so it's not a far-fetched thing to say anything about Jesus being the son of God. But a lot of times when people hear the word son of God, don't they usually think, you didn't exist, and now you exist. Is everybody are you tracking with me? But when the word Son of God is used for Jesus, the, in fact, you see this with the Pharisees, when Jesus claims to be the Son of God, they don't take it as just a biological function of any sort. They take it as a, you are saying you are equal with God. You are saying you are God. So when you get a new disciple, and they're reading John, you're going through, and, and help them to understand... That Jesus being the, the Son of God means that he has unity with the Father. That he is eternally coexistent with the Father. It's not just a biological thing. If you see it as just a biological thing, then guess who you become? You become a Jehovah Witness that think Jesus was created. Jesus is God. He's the eternal God. So when we see the idea of God the Son all through the scripture, it's denoting First and primarily, this idea that he has the same nature as God. He is, in fact, God. And this was considered blasphemy, and this was one of the reasons that they came against Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you can't, you know, denote some of the comparableness of an earthly father and his love for an earthly father's love for his earthly son and the heavenly father's love for his son. But it's not the same comparableness Really, God the Son is trying to denote this idea that he is God, he has unity with God. He, is, he, he, is, um, he was there in the beginning, he is there at creation, and he has complete equality with God. Let me walk you through this in a couple different passages. Go over to John 17, 5. So first it means that Jesus, as God's Son, is eternal when you see this Son of God. Just as there's unities among the Gospels, there's unity in the message of the Gospels, especially even the book of John, that Jesus is God's Son. And being God's Son, that means that He is eternal. He is God from eternity past. Jesus did not come into existence in 1 AD, right? He incarnated in 1 AD, but Jesus, God the Son, existed from all eternity past, right? So sometimes with new disciples, you've got to help them understand because sometimes they can think, oh, Jesus never existed. Now he exists. He's God's son. They're looking at it in a purely biological kind of physical idea. But no, he's eternal. Look in John chapter 17, verse 5. Here's what it says in John seventeen five: Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the what? the world was, right? So help that new disciple understand that that Son of God designation is not just an earthly comparable, um, you know, designation like the earthly Son and Father. We're really denoting this idea of the eternality of who Jesus is. There is one God, three persons, right? One God, three persons. Each person of the Trinity has unique, distinct, distinctive roles and responsibilities and emotions. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, coexistent eternal. Jesus, and when you read the book of John, he lets this fact be known. Not only that, but not only does it mean that when you see God the Son, the unity of God the Father and God the Son, that that Jesus is eternal. But you also see this, that Jesus is more than a man, but he's God's Son. So he's eternal, but he's more than just a man. Now go over to Matthew chapter 22. You can see what I think is a very... Hard portion of scripture to understand. Maybe I can lay it out and it can make sense. Or maybe you'll be more confused. If you've ever read Psalm 110, right? And thought, man, that's really confusing. Psalm 110, where it says, my Lord said to my Lord. And you're wondering like, what in the world is David talking about? Now, Jesus had just gotten finished talking to them about the great commandment. Which is love God and love others. Then Jesus comes in and goes on the offensive in verse 41. Verse 41. And he says this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. By the way, they tried to ask Jesus questions all the time and trip him up. They never could. But boy, you better be careful when Jesus starts asking you questions, right? I love at the end of this passage, it's like basically it says they stopped asking him questions. Very hilarious to me. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. This is Matthew twenty-two forty-one. Look at verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the Jewish people would have understood that the Christ, the Messiah, was going to be a son of David. They're thinking that he is just an earthly son of David. He's from the Davidic line, which Jesus is. He can track his genealogy through David to Abraham. But Jesus is trying to let them know, hey, you haven't quite paid attention to Psalm 110 and understood That the Messiah is more than just a man. The Messiah is God. He is the son of God. So he turns it on them in verse 42. They said to him, the son of David. So they say, yeah, he's an earthly Messiah. He's an earthly man. He's the son of David. He's from the Davidic line. We can see that. Verse 43. He said to them, Jesus says, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Lord. Now he's quoting from Psalm 110 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If you read Psalm 110, you start to see that this Davidic king, this king is actually going to rule and conquer. But in their minds these Jewish people thought, okay, wait a minute, the Messiah, when he comes the anointed one, all they had was their kind of nationalistic, political eschatology thinking when the earthly son of david comes he's going to overthrow rome set back up our kingdom the kingdom's going to come you can see them talking about this right you can see his you know is the kingdom coming now you can see his disciples talking about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom right they have this earthly idea and jesus turns it on him and says hey wait a minute go back to psalm 110 and and do you not catch how can david's son also be david's lord how can The Lord said to my Lord, when you look in Psalm 110, it actually says Yahweh says to Adonai, Lord, uh, the great I am says to Adonai. And basically what's going on in the text is Jesus saying, you say that David is just uh, an earthly son, the son, the Messiah is just an earthly son of David. But actually, he's more than just an earthly son of David. Right. He's also a heavenly son of God. He is God. That's why in verse 45, Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he his son? Jesus puts it on them and says, you got a misinterpretation. You think the Messiah is just going to be something earthly. He's going to be that. But so much more. He's going to be heavenly. He poses a question from Psalm 110. And notice verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. Of course... (laughs) Why would you not do that? Because if they would have just said that, wait a minute, I guess the Messiah is God, then they couldn't have been upset with Jesus when he says, I am God, right? So one of the things we you want to understand about this idea of Jesus uh, being the son of God means he's eternal, but also it means that he's more than just this earthly Messiah for Israel. He is the eternal son of God for the nations. He is meant, when you get to John's gospel, he's trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah and the God. Look, look look, look at John chapter 20. Do you feel like you're getting religious carpal tunnel right now? Look at John 20. John makes sure and puts these two aspects together in John 20 and verse 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did. This is John 20, verse 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I mean, everything that Jesus did is not in our book, right? Now, watch this. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, right? That's the the Messiah. He's the Christ. The, what does it say? Son of God. So he's not only earthly, he's heavenly, right? He's God. That's why he's trying to flip it back on them and say, you think you know the Scriptures? Go back to Psalm 110. You can have no other result from Psalm 110 to understand that the Davidic king was going to be more than a man. He was going to be God, the Son of God. John's trying to get across this idea all through his gospel. So when you're spending time with someone new in the faith and trying to help them understand what the Son of God means, it it has this idea of more than... It's not just this idea of like Nick comes from his his... His is born of his of his dad, uh, Ray Brown. It's this idea that he is actually God. He's the eternal God. Not only that, go to John John six John six. Everybody with me? You okay still? This also means that he is the Son of God. Means that Jesus has been entrusted with the plan of redemption. John chapter six. For time's sake, we won't read the whole passage. If you're a note taker. Put down verse 26 all the way through through verse 58. But we're going to look right here at verse 35. Jesus is pointing out who he is and that he has the plan of redemption. That God has entrusted to him as the son of God, the plan of redemption. He says in verse 34, And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you uh, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe all that the father, verse 37, gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will not cast out for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I will lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I my, myself will raise him up at the last day. Jesus, in one of his great I am statements in John, basically points out being the Son, not we're not even talking about eternality. We're only talking about that the Son of that Jesus is more than Messiah, but also the Son of God. He is God. But also the aspect that he is the one as a result of being the Son of God that is trusted with a plan of redemption. All that the Father has put in his hand, Jesus will have it. Jesus will accomplish perfectly uh, the plan and commandment of God on his mission to bring redemption to the world. No one else could do this. No one else would follow through with it. But Jesus would. Now, the Son of God means that he's going to accomplish his redemptive plan. So just when you're spending time with new disciples, understand, help them understand This Son of God is not just a... Uh, not, not a, he never existed, now he exists. And don't try to reduce it down to just the, own, the, uh, the earthly alone. There's a heavenly designation that the Son of God. There's a divine decree that that phrasing is meaning. And as a side note, the idea of him being the Son of God also means he's the Messiah. If he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. These two things go together. But not only that, but here's something interesting about him being the Son of God. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. I can remember when I first started studying the Bible and I would see the discussion of Jesus being the Son of God. It was really easy concept, honestly, because I just thought, oh, I get that. Jesus didn't exist. Now he exists. I'm a son. I've got a father. Seems pretty comparable. Same level. Let's go. But when when when, I, when that's all I understood and I started reading the book of John, I really didn't capture the full grasp that Jesus is God. In fact... I remember reading the book of John and someone saying to me, "What well, did you discover that Jesus is God? And I'm just kind of like, okay, wait a minute. He, he said he was the son of God. He, he said he was his father. Do you understand I wasn't quite getting the com- complete understanding of what the text was meaning? Now, here's what's interesting. Go over to uh, Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 25 through 27. Matthew 12, verse 25 through 27. What did I just say to go to? Matthew 12? That does not look like the passage I want you to go to. It would be Matthew 11, verse 25 through 27. Although, man, that's a really great passage, too. We're talking about, you know, Beelzebub, right? I mean, great passage. We could do that one. Look in verse 25. Jesus says this, I praise you, Father, Oh, by the way, this is kind of a fourth point here. Jesus being the Son of God means that he has a knowledge of God that's not based on experience, right? Like a learning experience. But a, a, but a knowledge of God that is direct, intuitive, immediate, and a constant ongoing experience. So this is where some of it breaks down. I know about my father, Ray Brown, through experience, like I learned him growing up, right? I, You know, we all learn our parents, right? We're always learning people. We're gaining knowledge through experience. We don't have a perfect knowledge of our fathers, right? We don't have this one sync with our parents, right? But Jesus was different. As the Son of God, he had an intuitive, um, immediate, constant, ongoing, direct experience with God in a way that no earthly child has with their father, right? It, it's unique. That's what it means to be the son of God. Look in verse 25. Look what he says in verse 25 of Matthew 11. Now we got it right. He says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise, intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Look at verse 26. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the who? What does it say? So there's this immediate, ongoing... By the way, look at that word knows. That's in a present tense in the Greek, meaning it's an ongoing thing. It's immediate. It's happening. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the... What does it say? So we see this. Being the Son of God... There's this idea that is so magnificent and beautiful and wonderful that although you may, we may use comparing of like an earthly son to, a, to an earthly father, there may be some comparisons in that, but they're nothing identical like what we see with Jesus and the Father. Jesus and the Father, the Father and Jesus, have this perfect, in sync knowledge of each other. In the present tense, no, it's intuitive, it's immediate, it's ongoing, it never changes Because he's the son of God, he's God in the flesh. He has this immediate connection. You know, it's really interesting. So uh, when you see the son of God, that's one of the things we've got to note, which just as a side note, have we ever noticed in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were one flesh and then we get to Ephesians 5 and the husband and wife are to be one flesh. This is showing forth Jesus' love for the church. And we see all this kind of idea that the relationship that that Adam and Eve have is to model the relationship that God has with His people. Now, why does the Son of God thing mean anything to us, the ongoing connection relationship? Because look in the text. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And, what does it say? Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So, what's really beautiful about... The unity of the father and son and the complete unity they have, and the absolute transparency and the knowingness that they have, go over to Matthew John 17 and I'll show you. this is the beauty of it. God the Son, complete and immediate, ongoing, perfect relationship with the Father. They have this circle among themselves of perfect unity. Now, we'll never accomplish that perfection in its, like what they have, but a piece of it they're actually trying to share with us. Look in John 17, 11, the Son of God. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, Jesus says, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they, may even, that they may be one even as what? We are. The astounding thing about God the Son is God the Son has an immediate, ongoing reflection of what's going on with the Father, the Father with the Son, this connection. And although we're never going to have it perfect or completely identical like the Father and the Son, a huge aspect of that circle God wants to share with us. He wants us to experience what He experiences within Himself. Why is there the Blessed Trinity? Because, I mean, God wants to share with us what He experiences within Himself. The Son of God. But not only that, go down to verse 23. Actually, look at verse 21 and we'll go to 23. But not only with them, the Godhead, but also with each other. He says this, that they all may be one even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory, he says in verse 22, which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. You see this? I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect in unity, so the world may know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundations of the world. I want you to notice this idea of the God the Son, the unity of God the Son with God the Father. It is eternal. It is unique. It is ongoing. It's not this. I'm learn. It's not that God the Son is learning about God the Father. And the, like God the Son knows the Father, and this same kind of unity, this same aspect of it he's trying to share it with us which is an amazing thing right listen they killed jesus for claim for his claim to be equal with the father and jesus is saying hey i want you to experience you it's not going to be identical i want you to experience some of the unity i have but in fact i'll go further than that i only not want you to experience what you got with me but i want you to experience it with each other you know, that's what makes the church so different. For 2,000 years, the church has stood. No nation has stood for 2,000 years. The establishment of the family uh, through a husband and wife coming together and children coming into the world, that family unit and that idea has existed from the very beginning. And I would submit to you why those things continue to exist. Because God the Son has unity with the Father and God the Son and the Father want to share that same unity and You know, even this, this is why marriage is so precious, even in the scriptures and precious overall. Um, Because marriage has this kind of unity, right? This unity, this ongoing, although you're learning through experience each other, there's an aspect where God means for marriage to be this idea of one flesh, naked and not ashamed. There's this transparency with each other. It's transparency that the father and the son have with each other. There's nothing hidden between them. But God means even even further than that means it to happen in a church. I mean, that's why as a church, honestly, that's why we've tried to get away from this thing of you just hear Nick preach. This is why we actually try to have a meal in communion, because the church trying to experience the unity of what the God, the son has with God, the father that he's said, I want them to experience a little what we've got. You can't experience that online. You can't experience that away. You can only experience that when you start to do life among the body of Christ, when we start to submit to Christ, when we start to relate to each other as brother and sister in Christ. And then all of a sudden what's interesting is the, the best place on earth starts to become the local church, right? The, the place we look most forward to is gathering with his people. And, and why is that? That's that because of God the Son, the doctrine of who God the Son is. Even I'll, even I'll close with this kind of like parting thought and idea. This means if you're single. People think like if you're single, it must be the cursed life. That's wrong. If you believe that, if you're single and you believe that, you are dead wrong, right? You know what God wants? God has said even as a single, you can have unity with the body of Christ. What does God want you to do? God wants you to create unity with the body of Christ because God the Son had unity with the Father and prayed that it won't be identical, but some comparable way you can experience that as well. And I would even tell you this, even in the institution of marriage. You know what will revolutionize some of your marriages? Our marriages, right? Act like I'm not perfect, act like I'm perfect up here, right? Have you ever stopped and tried to start responding to your spouse instead of them being your enemy or just someone to give you what you want what if you started to relate to them as a brother or sister in christ you know one of the things that's really messed up about what a lot of people think about marriage they read these marriage books honestly most marriage books are just trash because most marriage books will tell you act this way so you can get them to act this way and then you can have unity that's what i think about that all right here's what the scripture wants Love God the Son. Love God the Son. Experience the unity that God the Son has with the Father in a not identical but comparable way. And if you'll do this, start relating to your spouse as not just some person that you married, but another brother or sister in Christ. That means when you talk to them, you talk to them any way you talk to your brother and sister in Christ, right? And if I'm just telling you, if you would start to relate to your spouse as someone who's a part of the family of God, someone who has God the Son and not just some ring that you bought that you put on their finger, it will revolutionize your whole entire life and livelihood. Why is that? Because the unity of God the Son with God the Father. Would you stand and pray with me? We are so thankful for the good news of Jesus. If there's somebody here that has never placed faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, there is one gospel, there is one good news. You prayed for them, that they could be one with you. You prayed that they, in some comparable way, experience the unity of, with, that God has among itself. And I am asking today that you would bring someone to repentance and faith that we would put them in that baptistry, that they would live an obedient life for the glory of God and experience what a unified life. Even today, Father, in a minute, we're going to eat a meal. And around that meal, we're practicing unity. We're sharing something, a very intimate thing. We're going to take communion. We can only take communion without bringing condemnation if there is unity among brothers and sisters. What a beautiful thing you challenge us to even get our hearts right of a bitter and unforgiving heart towards another brother and sister, whether it be spouse or child or aunt or uncle or the person sitting on the next aisle. We do this so we can, once again, live in the unity that God the Son has with God the Father. Bless this time as we sing, let our hearts stir for you, and God's people said, Amen.